Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the Scanner studio today is Professor Susan Cutter of the University of South Carolina, where she's Carolina Distinguished Professor of Geography. And among her specialties are disasters, if I will say that, natural, man-made. She's written a book on Hurricane Katrina, the aftermath of that. She was on a disaster team right after 9-11, a national disaster team that went to New York. And most recently, uh, she's had some observations about South Carolina and the thousand-year flood uh, in October 2015. So, Susan, welcome back to the journal. Thank you, Walter. Well, let's let's define a few terms. We, you know, the the record rainfalls that we had in October, people called it a thousand-year flood, a hundred-year flood. Where do these terms come from, and what do they really mean? These terms are the biggest problem that scientists face uh, because these terms are based on probabilities. And a hundred-year flood is really a one percent chance flood. So in any given year, there's a 1% chance that a flood of this magnitude would occur. Uh, and many people don't understand probability. And for some reason, years and years and decades ago, it became known as the 100-year flood. And for flood managers, this has posed a big problem in terms of getting people to understand and, and perceive their risk from flooding. And you've got those blue signs with the supposed line, this is the 100-year flood line. Right. Does that affect where people can build, or does it affect their insurance rates, or does it depend upon the locality? The federal flood insurance program uses the 1% chance flood as the regulatory guideline. And anyone living within that so-called 100-year floodplain uh, should purchase flood insurance. And, and in fact, usually if people have a, a mortgage, they require to the banks. The banks generally require you to do it. Now, there's a, a bit of a, a, a misnomer with that flood insurance, and that is it's only available if communities participate in the flood insurance program. So you need to get your community to participate in the flood insurance program so that members and residents in that community can then partake right. of the insurance. Okay. Tell me about how a community, does the city government or town government have to do something? Yes. They have to basically become part of the, the federal flood insurance program. It asks them to do certain things like map their floodplains, minimal sorts of requirements to get into the federal flood insurance program. Okay. And so another term that was bandied about in October, people talked about being in the floodplain and then also in the floodway. What is the difference between those two? The floodway is the area that is immediately adjacent to the stream that any time uh, the stream goes over its banks, it will flood in the flood way. The floodplain is a much larger area, uh, and it takes a higher volume of water to flood the floodplain. Well, I'm just thinking about a floodway along the Congaree with the high water the water comes over the banks under the Gervais Street Bridge and under the Blossom Street Bridge, probably about 100 yards back into before you get to a built-up area. It's where all the power lines and almost at the Carolina Baseball Stadium. Right. So that's a floodway. That's a floodway. The floodplain actually extends up almost to Assembly Street, if you, if you look at it. That high ground? I mean, that... Well, it's graduated, right? So okay. as you're going down... As you're going down Gervais, you actually go downhill, correct? Okay, yes. And then you get to more of a flat part, which is where the bridge is, and then on the other side, you go up a hill again. And that, that hill to hill mm -hmm. is technically our floodplain. 
folks Dr. Cutter and I were talking about, Columbia and the Congaree River and going down either Gervais Street or Blossom Street. I, I guess, Susan, I, I've lived in Columbia since 1965. I never thought that much about the downhill, but now particularly if you mentioned on Gervais Street, the precipitate, you know, it does, It's a, the drop is pretty Right. So it's not it's not the complete floodplain, but but it's technically part of it. And so what you need are, you know, engineering studies that really tell you where that floodplain is. And you can have the 100 year floodplain. You can have the 500 year floodplain. You can have, you know, a higher probability floodplain. Well, I never heard of a 500 year floodplain. I mean, is that part of FEMA or the yes. flood influence? Yes, they do the the 1% chance flood. They also map the 500-year floodplain. Well, are they going to map the 1,000-year flood now that we've... Uh, probably not. Um, and if you look throughout the, the state of uh, South Carolina, they're in the process of remapping uh, many of these areas of the floodplains to update the floodplain maps so that they can do a little bit better job of regulating development, particularly in the 100-year floodplain. Well, and, and of course, that's not just a problem here. The floods went on in late December and now into January along the Mississippi, flooding out in Missouri, in areas around St. Louis, where I think they talked about they last had floods in that area in the 1980s. Well, that's 40 years ago. Although um, there were floods in 1993 were pretty significant in the in the St. Louis, Missouri area, and then further downstream in uh, southern Louisiana and the Baton Rouge area, for example, they had pretty significant flooding in 2011. So the Mississippi Basin mm-hmm. is obviously prone to flooding, uh, and this this particular event was primarily generated by ex- excessive rainfall, similarly to what we had here. It was a stationary system that just rained and rained and rained and dropped significant amounts of water in that basin uh, and flooded some of the smaller uh, rivers leading into the Mississippi. And now we see that large volume of water making its way south Memphis is next uh, in terms of flooding, and as it goes further south, there'll be flooding all along the Mississippi. So the floods along the Mississippi, they'll be continuing, but isn't the Mississippi basically walled in with levees? You talk about flooding in Memphis. Right, um, but but levees, as we've seen uh, time and time again, can be overtopped mm-hmm. if they're not high enough. If they're not properly maintained, they can be breached mm-hmm. and fail. Mm-hmm. And so all of this this contributes. Mm-hmm. Not all of the Mississippi is completely levied. Mm-hmm. Significant portions of it are, however. Yeah. Well, as, as you look at, at, at the work you've done, and like I said, I, I mentioned the work, your work on Katrina, but you've been working on disasters, hurricanes, and all of this for most of your career. You're you're a geographer. How did you get into that? I've always been interested in the relationship between the natural world and people and how people use the land, how they uh, maneuver through their, their daily lives. So this interaction between nature and society is a, a fundamental core principle within geography, and that's what drew me to it. So you're a cultural geographer? Um, I would say cultural. It's more environmental because of that interaction. And geography as a discipline allows me to look at lots of different phenomena, but the way in which I look at it is through a spatial lens uh, and looking at relationships in the same way that a historian can look at lots of different things, but they look at it through a history lens. But as, again, as I guess I'm thinking about 9-11 when you were called in to be a part of that national disaster team. I mean, you're dealing with an environment, but that was a, a man-made... Right. The environment can be both a 
a uh, natural environment, but can also be the built environment. So my training was actually in urban geography and learning about urban places. And so what what interests me are all different kinds of places, whether they're rural places or urban places, uh, and how the economic activity occurs there, um, what people do for their livelihoods, who lives there, what are the distinctions between the different social groups that are there, et cetera. So it's really looking at, at everything that is specific to that particular place and trying to see if that place is unique or if there are some patterns uh, that come on the landscape that allow us to look well, at different places. Well, let's look back to 9-11 and, and let's talk a little bit about your the work and the experiences you had in the aftermath of, of those attacks. Okay. Uh, we were went to New York City, I want to say, about three to four weeks after 9-11. And we were interested in looking at how geographic information was being used in the response and recovery uh, from that. Keep in mind that one of the things that happened in 9-11 was the New York City Office of Emergency Management was in one of the buildings that was um, demolished when the World Trade Centers came down. And so we were interested in how New York City got back up and running in terms of its use of geographic information. For example, uh, at first, people didn't know how many folks were in the towers and how many people possibly could have perished they didn't know where the hot spots were, and so the use of satellite imagery was important in helping to determine where the hot spots were that, that were burning in the World Trade Center. So that example, we were particularly from a geographical perspective, was interested in how geographic information was was being used. Most of our work, however, has uh, recently, in the last five years or so, been focused on natural events. Uh, and we've been looking at uh, what happened in Hurricane Sandy in the New Jersey area because it occurred to us that most of the news coming out from Hurricane Sandy was all, all focused on uh, New York City. And yet, uh, the New Jersey shore had significant damage that occurred to it. And it was a parallel to Hurricane Katrina, where most of the news coming out was focused on New Orleans, and yet the Mississippi coast was devastated. So we call the Mississippi coast the Forgotten Coast, and we think of New Jersey as also the Forgotten Coast. So it's given us a couple of examples of how to compare recovery in, in two different places. I know in Katrina, even just a little bit further east, Mobile Bay, there was not a dock left in the bay right. after Katrina. Right. Which doesn't sound like a big deal, but that was not just pleasure, but also commercial. I exactly, mean, exactly. And and Katrina extended um, pretty far out. We just focused primarily for our work on, on the coast of Mississippi. With the work you did, you produced a report. Mm-hmm. Has the Mississippi state government, have those local communities used what you found in terms of the way that, because the coast is certainly, the way it has been rebuilt is far different from what was there before. Right. Our uh, goal in, in doing this work, which was funded by the National Science Foundation, was to provide feedback to state and local officials on the recovery effort. And we have done that. And what you see along the Mississippi coast now is like a patchwork quilt of development. Some places, the slabs are there, but there's no housing on it. In other places, it's completely built up. And some places, particularly in the hardest hit areas in Waveland and Bay St. Louis, are not 
coming back. And it's a very interesting story as to why these places are not recovering. Well, I'm, I'm curious about that because both of those, Waveland and Bay St. Louis, were really resort communities for, the, for New Orleans and had been for well over a century. And so those folks have opted not to go back in there and rebuild? What, what has happened is Bay St. Louis is slowly coming back in portions of, of Bay St. Louis, primarily near the downtown area. Portions of Waveland are coming back, but an awful lot of people have opted to not rebuild. They may still own the land, but they've decided not to put up structures. Part of that is related to new requirements because of the federal flood insurance program. Part of it, I think, is related to resources, Mm -hmm. people not having the the resources to rebuild. And I think part of it is, is related to their perception that they don't want to go through this again. And so they would prefer to live further away from the coast, have that property on the coast where they can come down and visit, maybe spend the weekend camping or in a trailer, camper, something like that. But their everyday life is far enough away from the coast that they're not going to get flooded. And we've heard stories from people that say, no, I used to have a house uh, right along the shore and I've built on the other north of I-10, so I know I'm safe from mm-hmm. the water, mm-hmm. but I still go down there to see the to see the sea. There was an interesting phenomenon, sort of like that, in in the 50s after Hurricane Hazel. A lot of people on the South Carolina coast sold their lots. There were several. Today we would say good old boys in Ori and Georgetown County who were there, people were, they were buying lots for like $500 each. People had lost it. Of course, this is before there was, there was federal flood insurance. You had to be able to lose a house, and Hazel just pretty much, you know, whether you're dealing with Surfside or Garden City, just wiped things out, and people sold their lots. Hazel was 50, 1954. And what is interesting in some of those communities, like Garden City, which were unincorporated, the real estate people put in their own covenant. You had to be able to build a house that was worth ten to fifteen thousand dollars. Now, in the late fifties, early sixties, that's a fair, fairly sizable sum, uninsured. So, what they were doing is they wanted to rebuild an upscale beach, but it had you had to be able to say, okay, I can walk away from it. Now, of course, with federal flood insurance, you can build a hundred thousand dollar house. But isn't there a limit on the federal flood insurance? There is a limit, and I believe it's $250,000. So for most of our coastal properties, that's a drop in the bucket to the value of some of those homes that are located along the coast. And we saw this in New Jersey, too, where there were mansions that were damaged in the the storm, and these folks were either self-insured or had some other mechanism um, because the federal flood insurance would not cover the cost of that property. Maybe it's apocryphal, but I have heard that there are some areas on the coast of South Carolina where even the federal flood insurance won't do because of their exposure that these people have to go to Lloyd's of London. Maybe that's just a... No, I mean, that's that's the case, that that, that $250,000 cap is just insufficient for a $5 million home. And, of course, that federal flood insurance didn't come into, what, 1969? 60, I think that was 68, 69. Yeah. And you know who one of the sponsors of that bill was, Doctor? I think it was someone from this state. Yes, Senator Strom Thurmond was one of the sponsors. And after that, beachfront development exploded. Right, right. What's, What's interesting with the federal flood insurance program is how many people do not take advantage of it. And we saw this uh, with the flood here in South Carolina. I think statewide, there's something like 28, 29,000 policies. That's it. 
not very many policies considering how flood-prone this state is, both from coastal flooding but also river flooding, not only in the, the Midlands area but upstate. And I think we need a more aggressive approach to get more people to take advantage of that federal flood insurance program. So 28 to 29,000 policies in the entire state, and you think of the development from Little River to the Savannah River. That's just absolutely incredible. Right. And, And even further inland, and you go into the upstate, in Greenville and Spartanburg counties in particular, Well, with the October floods in the Midlands, clearly Columbia and Forest Acres, communities must participate in the federal flood program. They do? Okay, so that helped the people who did have so they could get flood insurance. But what would have happened if Forest Acres hadn't been a participating community? Then the residents who were affected would not have any recourse from federal flood insurance. They, so, wouldn't, they would not yeah. get any help. So this, this really starts with the local communities. Correct. And of course, one of the problems on the coast is a lot of those areas are unincorporated. But counties. Counties can do it. Counties can do it. Richland County, for example, participates. Um, most of the coastal counties uh, participate in the flood insurance mm-hmm. program. But then why do so few people take the policies? I don't know. I think people don't understand their risk. Uh, And it gets back to this idea of a 100-year flood. Well, I haven't been flooded, and I've been here for 40 years. Therefore, I'm not going to be flooded. So we have to do a better job. And, And we, in this case, is not only the state, but also scientists and educators and and public broadcasters, we need to do a better job of helping people understand their risk and having them take precautions and ways that can reduce this risk and mitigate the effects should something happen. I don't think anybody expected a flood like we saw in October uh, in South Carolina, and yet people are rebuilding back the same way that they had before this floods rather than thinking that, well, perhaps this could happen again and I ought to think a little bit differently about... Well, if they're rebuilding, do they, don't they have to meet certain requirements in terms of elevation or... They do, and uh, these requirements now are uh, coming to the fore as, as people have gone through the process of, of cleaning out their homes and are thinking about the the rebuilding. The elevation requirements only apply to homes that were more than 50% damaged. So if you were 49% damaged, uh, you don't have to adhere to any of the new uh, regulations or guidelines for elevation. So you could go right back in on that slab. Exactly. Now what is happening is at least in portions of Richland County, people are making a decision not to rebuild, that they're going to walk away from that property. And this is obviously a a decision by the individual homeowners. If enough people, if the if the city, for example, of Forest Acres or Columbia or would come in an offer to purchase the house in these flood zones and convert that property into a greenway, for example. That would reduce the flood risk for lots of people around that area. It would give the homeowner fair value for their home, but also would create a lasting opportunity uh, to reduce the the vulnerability of that community to flooding. We've seen this happen in lots of communities. In New Jersey, for example, the city of Sayreville, New Jersey, went in and bought an entire neighborhood of homes and created a park out of that. And that will ultimately reduce 
the extent of flooding uh, for adjacent homeowners because it allows the river to move. It allows the stream to move to flood parks, which can recover, versus flooding houses, uh, which would then experience significant damage and disruption of people's um, livelihoods. Well, you mentioned that there are people in, in Richland County who are choosing not to rebuild. Well, that property there, can I just go in and buy that lot and build? Or if I build on that lot now, do I have to meet, if the house had to be demolished, do I have to meet certain? You have to meet certain elevation requirements. Okay. And those elevation requirements uh, depend on where the property is and where the flood extent is. Well, some of those are fairly significant. I have six, eight feet. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. And people may decide that they don't want to to build like that, particularly if the house was on on a slab. And those, again, those are individual decisions. But communities can help and community governments can help because they do get hazard mitigation assistance money from FEMA. And as part of their mitigation plans, they can develop a buyout program. And that buyout program then enables the city to purchase that property and that structure. And then the city then converts it to some kind of a, a, a green um, or a, a park environment, for example. I'm just trying to envision, you know, a neighborhood where several people choose to build, several don't. I mean, in the if the if you've got just sort of gaps, that's the the risk you run. And some sometimes the buyouts programs work because people are really interested in it, and other times they don't work as effectively because you have this patchwork quilt. But it will only take the next flood, and when that next flood comes, and we know it will, uh, then people eventually uh, do sell their property if they're living yeah. in an area that is is repeatedly flooded. All right. Susan, we need to pause for a moment, let our listeners know that this is Walter Redgard's journal, and I'm talking with Dr. Susan Cutter from the University of South Carolina about disasters, natural and man-made, and we've been sort of honing in on the flooding in South Carolina in October 2015. As a geographer, how did you, when the news began to come in in October, were you surprised? Were you shocked? Well, I was in Columbia at the time, and I saw the weather reports. We all saw the weather reports, and we started mobilizing because we knew that there was going to be... Now, now you say we. We, the, the Hazards and Vulnerability Institute, my colleagues and I, um, we were trying to anticipate what some of the state needs might be in terms of information. Uh, we also went into the university, which was closed during this time, uh, and did work for the state uh, recovery effort. And so we're very proud of, of the work that we've been able to do to help the state along in the recovery. Well, I know you were watching the October 2-3, watching the weather forecast, and actually Neil and I do that too. But all of the projected paths of the, when we went to bed that Saturday night, everything was going to go south and west of Columbia, more towards the Aiken area. And we woke up, and it was right on top of Columbia. Yeah. And what was extraordinary, and, and we haven't seen this as much, at least in, in the time that I've been studying disasters, was a lot of the, the flooding in the Columbia metropolitan area was of a flash flood variety where the water came up really, really fast. And what we saw were neighbors helping neighbors and rescue efforts that were swift water rescues done by neighbors going in, going door to door in some of these worst affected communities, helping people out of their houses because they were completely taken by surprise. And this was just a fabulous example of 
the spirit of South Carolina and the helping behavior that is a hallmark of a good disaster recovery. If you don't have people helping each other through the hard times, um, recovery will take much, much longer. Well, since you do work on, I guess, disaster relief, so much that happened in South Carolina across the state was people just did it. it some of it was coordinated, some of it, some of it wasn't, but it happened. I was surprised because we went out into the, the field, that is, we went out to survey the damage and how quickly people had mobilized to clean out the houses and how uh, the volunteer effort was extraordinary in, in statewide. And this, again, I think is, is a credit to the, the spirit of the South Carolinians where, you know, their, their faith, their altruism, uh, it was really remarkable to see. And, you know, it's one of those times that you say, yes, I'm from South Carolina, and yes, we, we handled this pretty well. Well, many of those responses were church-based. Yep. They were out there with teams helping, you know, clean out the houses, and I got involved in that. And I've been through clean out after hurricanes, but when you've had eight feet of stuff in your house, what that does to everything there, and particularly if it's two or three days later, the odor, the decay, and the health issue was a big deal. You know, people wore gloves. Two days into it, they, was, they were asked to wear masks. Right. Folks just showing up or a team, you know, I was on one team and somebody said, well, there's somebody down the street that needs help. We saw, we saw a lot of that. We saw um, people just showing up with food mm -hmm. for the people who were helping to muck out mm -hmm. the houses. Mm -hmm. I mean, it really was an extraordinary effort when you, when you look back on it. And part of this is because some of the damage was so localized. One of the things that uh, we've been doing is we have a survey, uh, a computer-oriented survey, and we sent out postcards to residents in Richland County and in Lexington counties who were affected, and we're asking them to give us uh, their impressions of what they did, what they plan on doing on the recovery. And so we're hoping to get a lot more information from the community itself in terms of how they see their long-term recovery, some of the problems that they may have run into in talking with FEMA, for example, or uh, the city or the county. And so we're hoping to get more information about how residents are faring in the recovery. Well, what about the fact now that Yes, you have 911 calls, but if people are on cell phones and not landlines. You can get warning messages on cell phones. The, the problem is that in this particular event, it happened so quickly. The, the flash flooding happened so quickly. The water was rising so quick, quickly. It was hard to alert people to it. So the... The county and the city did not activate their emergency warning system. Um, but it is possible with cell phones. People have to opt in oftentimes to that warning message. Mm -hmm. The same way that you get weather alerts, alerts mm -hmm. you just opt into that, that okay. system. I think that's what people need to be educated about. Right. Right. Well, there's a lot of, of education, and the best time to educate people about um, disasters and disaster risk is after a disaster. Uh, it, it becomes a, a moment of learning, and you can tell people what they could do better next time, how to prepare themselves and their families so it doesn't happen again, some of the options that they may have to uh, mitigate their risk or to do a little bit more around the house to reduce the impact of 
of flooding or water damage or things like that. Looking at the future, what about five steps into post-flood rebuilding? Your article. The article, uh, I got motivated to send a piece to the state newspaper because we did, we as a state, uh, did so well during the the response phase with the helping behavior and and people working together that I didn't want the state, the counties, and communities to simply rush quickly into decisions about rebuilding without taking a little bit longer view of that. And so I came up with the five steps on what a smart recovery would look like. And the first one is that we have to recognize that floods are acts of people. And that the reason we have floods and flood impacts is because we've built too close to the water. And if we haven't built too close to the water, then there could be excess rainfall, there could be flooding along rivers, but it wouldn't affect property in the same way. So we need to think about where we're building and those beautiful lakes that we have in many, many communities are artificial lakes. And a lot of people didn't realize uh, that they lived on an artificial lake that was ponded or dammed and that there were problems uh, that could happen with that dam failing because most of them were earthen dams. We need to think about the, the rivers and creeks as they're always going to move and you don't want to build right up to them because there's no place for them to move. And there's a wonderful principle called making room for the river that the people in the Netherlands are now beginning to implement. And instead of trying to control the river through levees and structures, they're controlling the people by making them move out of the river's way. So this allows the river to take its natural course and you build on slightly higher ground away from the river. So making room for our creeks and rivers is another way of smart uh, rebuilding and recovery. And this could include this buyout program that I talked about earlier. Okay. Now, in South Carolina, we don't really have much in the way of levees. That's more in the Mississippi and other exactly, places. Exactly. But making room for the river, particularly in, in the low country and the, the coastal plain, is just not building that close to the river because those rivers rise and then they flood. It's, it's generally pretty flat. So making room for the river in those cases in, let's say, Williamsburg or Clarendon counties would be locating a little bit further away from the river or building slightly higher structures off the ground to allow the, the yeah. water to go underneath. Yeah. I think it was a shock to some people to read in December in the newspapers of the state that there were fields in Williamsburg and Florence County that were still underwater two months later. Right. And that amount of water on those fields has created a significant agricultural loss on the order of about $115 million to date. Yeah. And, and in fact, the farmers of South Carolina, we ha they had a drought right. for most of the year. And then this, a double whammy. And again, some people had crop insurance. Some people... Some people didn't. Right. But... The fields, that's different from building, though. Right, right. But there's still a loss there, and there's not much we can, we can do about, about that. So you're not losing residential property, but you are losing some of your economic base. And this is a big concern for the state right now is that economic base that they've lost. Well, Historically, people always built close to the river because that was the right. because of flooding. That was the richest land. Right, right. 
and and that was the land that was the most fertile with all the nutrients yeah because of the flooding of the river that would bring those nutrients and deposit them on the land so this is an age-old problem this the societies have always built near the rivers or on the rivers or on the coast so okay we just got to two points we still got some more we got some more the third one is is to question whether or not some of these dams that were built, uh, whether they should be rebuilt as they were, whether or not they should be rebuilt stronger, or not at all. I think we saw with a lot of the, the newspaper coverage that there were major issues with the maintenance of these earthen dams and the inspections of these earthen dams. So if we're going down this route of rebuilding these dams, we need to have them done better, and we need to have the inspection programs in place uh, that will ensure that they are inspected on a regular basis, and if they need maintenance, that that would be done. The state program for dams would have to be enhanced. So there's going to be uh, some issues, I think, coming down the road a little bit on this, but we need to think smartly about whether or not this is the best approach for this lakefront living. Well, you're talking about major landscape changes now. Yes, the landscapes were changed when those lakes were built, but now couple of those areas out near Arcadia Lakes and that mm-hmm. general area. Again, we talk about in the Columbia area. There's not much of a stream there. No, but in when it rains, you do you do see the stream. And there there are things if the choice is made to not rebuild the dam, there are things that can be done to maintain that as nice open space. It can be reforested, for example. Um, you can put um, parks in there, um, this sort of thing. So there's there's a lot that can be done with some creative thinking. The next one is to get communities and the state to increase flood insurance coverage. We can do a much better job of convincing people, residents, homeowners in particular, that flood insurance is the is the way to go to protect their investment. And this is just a, an educational campaign about the value of it. Even if you don't live in the designated 100-year floodplain, but let's say you're, you're five feet away from it, it's probably prudent to think about getting that flood insurance. And then the last point is, is to get the cities involved in promoting flood mitigation. And this means that Purchasing flood insurance is one option. Putting in a sump pump is another option. Doing things around your house to protect your investment from flooding. And you don't need uh, federal authority to do this. You don't need a law to do this. This is just good practice in in trying to reduce your vulnerability to any kind of a, a natural event. So there are lots of different kinds of strategies one can do to, to mitigate your risk against uh, flooding. If, if you want to do that, it also applies to uh, wind damage from storms, thunderstorms, hurricanes, and so forth. So it's just thinking a little bit out of the box about what can you do to protect your house and your home from these natural hazards. Well, what about earthquakes? We are in earthquake country. Um, We do have a seismic risk in the state, in particular in the Charleston area, but it also extends up into Columbia and portions of the the upstate. There are things that, that one can do as well to improve the the seismic mitigation in, in your house. One of the things is, and and when I bought a house here, I bought a wooden house because wood is more flexible than brick, 
and and wood will move when the earth moves. Brick is a little bit more rigid and, and you would lose your chimney, for example. You may lose siding the bricks on, on your house. You can put latches on, on cupboards. You can affix bookcases to the wall. So if there is some shaking, those bookcases are not going to fall over and damage yourself or others. And there's lots of advice that's, that's available from um, the South Carolina Emergency Management Division and also from FEMA. And they give very good things on the internet about what you can do to protect yourselves from earthquakes, okay. floods, hurricanes, and so forth. Well, let's talk about the South Carolina Emergency Management Division, because I'm not sure, again, there's a lot of public awareness of this. The SCEMD is the state agency that's in charge of disaster preparedness, response, recovery, and mitigation. And they are a group of professionals that are located in West Columbia off of Fish Hatchery Road. And they monitor the situation. They provide advice to the governor on when to uh, order, let's say, evacuations uh, along the coast uh, with, with guidance from other uh, state agencies like the state climatologists, for example. And it's that state agency that really is in charge of all emergencies in South Carolina. They take the lead, but they also work very closely with DNR, Department of Natural Resources, which is where the flood program is located. And they also work closely with South Carolina Department of Health and Environmental Control, DHEC, because when you have public health emergencies like we had with the Columbia Canal, that brings DHEC uh, into it as well. So SCEMD is the state agency that really is the, the lead on all of the disaster and, response. And obviously it was activated and operating during the October floods Yes, and they were they were activated at least a week ahead of that, watching the the weather reports. Well, see, that's fascinating. I mean, people are not aware of that. They monitor this, and and they're when they're activated, they go into a twenty four seven operation mode, and the people who work there are on twelve hour shifts, and we actually from the university sent over a couple of people to work in the Emergency Operations Center on Sunday and Monday, I believe, uh, to relieve some of the staff there who hadn't had time to shower and sleep. And so they asked us if we could come over and, and help with some of their GIS support, which we did. Well, as you say, we learn after the this is how we learn and, and, and improve. And I think the more awareness, for example, that we do have this very professional organization to manage, but it's, it's more than just initial response, it's also recovery. Right. Um, it's recovery, it's mitigation. They run the state hazard mitigation program as well. They do a lot of the preparedness work, not only for hurricanes and flooding, but for earthquakes as well. And it's a very good department. All right. Susan Alfred's giving us the wind-up sign. Um, any last words for our listeners before we sign off today? I think the one thing I would let people um, and hope that they would understand is the October flood may feel as though it's unique, but flooding is perhaps the most ubiquitous natural hazard that this nation faces, and one needs to be prepared for that. And just don't assume that because you don't live in a 100-year floodplain that you can't be flooded. All right. Well, Dr. Susan Cutter, Carolina Distinguished Professor of Geography and expert on hazards, natural and man-made, thanks for being with us today on The Journal. Thank you so much.
This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. I've known Sue Cutter for a long time. We've worked together on various projects. But I find her field of how communities deal with disasters, either natural or man-made, a fascinating one. And during our discussion, she talked about how communities, whether it's city or county, respond to disasters. But she pointed out that one of the things that happened in South Carolina that was not governmental was the way that South Carolinians helped South Carolinians in times of trouble. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.